Rufus, what do you think about timing the market? I think it can be very difficult. Did you know that this episode is brought to you by Hall Tactical, which was started by Blair Hall? And if those of you guys who have not listened to that episode should go back and listen to it because it's fascinating. He's a blackjack options trading legend. Yes. He's a legend. He started an ETF that uses advanced algorithms as well as macro and technical indicators to anticipate future market returns. And these strategies are stress tested over 20 years of historical data and evolve from tactical allocation models developed and traded by Hull Investments. So essentially they're seeing success timing the market. If you want to learn more, you can go to hulltactical.com. And if you want to hear more about their process for building models to time the market, you can listen to the end of the episode for a conversation with Hull Tactical's CEO, Petra Bakasova. And eventually we're going to release that in a full episode, which will be exciting because I think it was a really good interview. So on today's episode, we're actually going to be talking to Kyle Boddy, who is a fascinating guy who's kind of revolutionized pitch training, and we'll do our normal discussion of some of the interesting in-game decisions made by the NFL coaches, and we'll give you a couple picks. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast, where Rufus is in his new home. Rufus, I like it. It looks very homey. Uh, maybe get some wall hangings and it's always nice to have like a sprinkler head right in your in your background but it's important i mean especially if the building is labeled as combustible is it combustible it's made out of wood it's i don't know it's built in 1915 mm. pre-war that's 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 pretty cool where is it exactly do you want it do you want our really listeners knowing where you live i'm about to dox no you no no that's that's all the all the details you're gonna give not your address yeah. or anything like that so people show up I live on the I live on the Bowery. Uh, so, how was your football week? Um, was not great to be honest. Let's see, we didn't um we didn't bet much on NFL sides or totals or anything on those except except for um some derivative type things. College football was not great. Um, your pregames your pregames lost. I, I know my pregames lost. My second except half for the two doing... that you disagreed with me on, but. <laughs> So those like ones, one, on those. Yeah. one of those was almost the mother of bad beats where I guess we had Texas, we had Nevada against Texas state or Texas. No, we had Nevada yeah, 17. plus 17 and a half yeah. and plus 17 against Texas. I, I just don't they're see that 17. as the mother of all bad it, beats. It isn't the mother, but they're up 17, nothing at the half. And it's, and, and uh, they just need to cover plus 34 and a half in the second half. And they ended up um, covering it. But, but before that they gave up five touchdowns and had to get a backdoor cover. Yeah. Um, do you think Texas State is like a team that you need to reevaluate your priors on or not really? I, I don't know. I didn't watch any of the game. Yeah. They had a lot of transfers too, also. Did you watch yeah. uh, the did you watch the Oregon mm-hmm. beat down? Um, I watched a little bit in the second half because we were we had actually a Colorado second half bet. And did that I was that like, one, Oregon right? Oregon kept their starters in basically the entire game. Did the, the, the Colorado game. won, right? The second half won. It did win, yeah. 
Yeah. We had the under in the second half there, which ah, nice. won pretty easily. Yeah. I think we might have had the second half over actually, which didn't win. No, that did not win. No. Did you watch uh Josh McDaniel, the Josh McDaniel situation? Are you I didn't I actually didn't know who won the game until the next morning. I was I was out. Um that was Sunday night. Are you aware of what the situation was though? I am. Okay. I did so, my I did my homework, Jeff. For those of you, for those of you guys that um watch this, right? They're you know, the uh Raiders were down eight um and were driving, and it looked like they were gonna stall out at the I don't know, 30 or 25 or something like that. And, and uh, McDaniel decided to kick a field goal. And then I think there was like a, there was a, was a personal foul six. or whatever. Yeah. Personal foul uh, or sorry. Uh, there was the, you know, the, the jumping Leverage. on the other guy's back. Yeah. So, and then they obviously went for it and then they stalled out again inside the five or 10 or something like that. And, and he ended up kicking the field goal with three timeouts left and the two minute warning. And so he, you know, and everyone's kind of crucifying for him for it on Twitter, except for our friend Matt Davidow. And um, I think the first decision was definitely correct. I think the second one was on the margin. And I think that the interesting thing about this is people don't um, understand how different the Steelers are going to play based on situation. And it's crazy to think about, right? Like the Steelers are essentially going to crawl into a shell. Um, you know, trying to run out the clock versus if they're tied, they're going to actually uh, try to score. And so, you know, even when you, if you tie that game, which would require what 50% ish, probably even less on that fourth down play 50% on a two point conversion, right. Even if you do that, you are at best a what 35% chance to win with with uh, the Steelers having the ball with over two minutes left. Is that, would that be, would you say that? Yeah. Because then, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. So I mean, you have your timeouts left. So the Steelers can't just go full. Um, I mean, the Steelers are, are going to be a little more conservative. If, but if they're probably going to be able to bleed the whole clock. Right. Oh, you're saying like they wouldn't oh, necessarily it's a tie game. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. It, they, it. they, they are worried about if they, if they get a three and out, then the Raiders actually get the ball back with, plenty of time to kick you a field goal. So they're, they're there, there's incentivized a, to there's, there's a continuum there of this, right. Where ultimately if there's like three seconds left, it's a terrible decision. Right. So it is very dependent on how much time's left on the clock. And so wondering, I wonder left, what, clearly. I wonder, well, yeah. And I wonder what, what, what that time, it, that number is right. Ultimately, because that's probably where this is where this decision is right versus wrong is is the exact amount of time left and the timeout situation et cetera. so right and, and the uh, the fourth the fourth down um the Ben Baldwin's fourth down bot had it as 15 like a, a 5.1% win probability uh loss right in the field goal there right but, but i think david out is saying that it's probably on the margin. It's not even, yeah. I, I think the one thing you have to remember about these models is it's very hard to model the end of game stuff. Yeah. Where, where these are not, there's not as many data points and, and there are these sort of factors that can really affect it um, a lot more, like how you expect the other team to play. And I think, um, I mean, the Steelers got a first down on their next drive, which effectively ended the game. Well, the fact that they got it on third down, um, was the bad thing. The Steelers could have gotten a first down and the Raiders would have been fine to get the ball back, but except it was on third down. Um, so you had the extra plays there and the timeouts called. So, I mean, they trusted their 
their defense to get a stop and they trusted that the Steelers were going to be playing it conservatively enough. Right. That- well, you know, and I think again, like the, this goes back to this idea that people are anchored from a loss aversion perspective on, on tying or not losing right. versus winning a game. Right. Because ultimately the, the, you know, the field goal puts you in a situation where all you need to do is score a touchdown to win. Right. Versus even getting a two point conversion, et cetera. And so, I mean, I, again, like I, I get it because I think ultimately the idea that you want to win the game versus like push to overtime, I think is, is largely still lost on people. Um, you, you saw it, uh, um, Seth Walder had the whole thing about, you know, when you score a touchdown to be down by four going for two there versus kick of kicking the extra point to try to get yourself in a position to basically win the game. Right. And again, this is like counterintuitive. Um, and, and I, and people are doing this Rufus, this whole idea of going up by 11 versus 10 also. So, you know, there's obviously some more analytics there too, but it is interesting to see how much um, people are starting to make more optimal decisions. Even, even green Bay did the went for two down by, uh, you know, seven, they were down 14, scored a touchdown, went for two, and then ended up winning the game in regulation, which was yeah. which was pretty cool. We had Green Bay and minus that, one, so that was that was nice. I feel like that kind of teases our interview we have coming up a little bit too, where uh, talking about how um, teams' acceptance of of analytics. Yeah, I mean, I think it, we're going to have Kyle Body on uh, later, and he's uh, worked in baseball and is largely responsible for the fact that a lot of these pitchers throw in the high eight nineties these days, um, with his training techniques. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea of, uh, analytics and different ways to approach things, I think will be an interesting discussion with him. Do you want to do our timing the market segment? Let's do it. So for this week's market timing segment brought to you by Hull Tactical, an ETF that leverages, uh, market timing and the sponsor of this week's bet the process podcast, Hull Tactical, um, for our market timing segment this week. We're going to talk about timing the market for NFL games related to injuries. And last week, the Bengals, Joe Burrow, was questionable to play. He did end up playing, and that line ended up moving. Jeff, how did you time the market to gain advantage? Yeah, we we played the Bengals early in the week at minus two. And obviously, I knew that this the reason we saw value in this was really the, you know, unknown of Joe Burrow, who obviously is very important playing. And I believed that he was going to play mostly because I thought it was just such an important game um, that he was, you know, the likelihood was probably higher than 50% that he was going to play. And um, obviously the line later in the week moved, you know, when they announced in, on Monday that he was going to play, went to three. And, you know, so the there is a risk to playing that early before the information comes out. But sometimes you have to do that in order to try to gain any kind of an edge, obviously. And, and you know, if, if he was announced out, it probably would have gone to even or maybe even, you know, minus one or something like that, like plus one. So I, I, I took a risk. Um, and I think sometimes you need to do that. And the sort of timing the market kind of all about, you know, information is trying to like jump that information sometimes, which, you know, it can be a fool's errand at time, but you know, sometimes if, if you want to get an edge, that's what you got to do. So that you was had the an opinion and you were right. Yeah. So that was the Hull Tactical timing the market segment uh, brought to you by Hull Tactical. And we'll bring in Kyle Body now, and then we'll talk to you guys all on the other side. We now welcome in Kyle 
Bodhi to the Bet the Process podcast. Kyle, welcome to uh, our seven listeners. Welcome you. <laughs> well, thanks, Rob. That's more than our podcast has, so that's good. <laughs> How many more? Can you quantify that? Seven, uh, probably. You know. So tell tell us a little bit about who is Kyle Bodhi. Uh, we mispronounced your name in the intro, so sorry about that. Oh, it's quite fine. Um, yeah, short, long and short of it is I'm the founder of Graveline Baseball, uh, widely basically accepted as the data, like largest data-driven baseball player development company. Um, but we're in other sports as well. I just got back from an NBA ga- engagement um, with a couple of people who know you, Jeff. So I'll leave it at that. Nice, nice cliffhanger. Um, and uh, well, that's, that could be anybody, right? Um, but then, uh, yeah. Yeah, I worked at Microsoft also, did a little bit of time there out in Seattle, uh, worked in the Xbox division uh, as a software developer for a few places. Uh, but yeah, sports science is kind of my passion and where I'm at, of course, uh, was a pro gambler for three, four years as well. So tell us a little bit what is Driveline. I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's had a huge impact on baseball. Um, I, I, I had someone who kind of stopped watching baseball for a little while and then started watching it again this year. Uh, I was like, how, why is everyone throwing so fast now? What, what's going on with this velocity? And so you're you're the one to blame for that, right? A bit of our legacy, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, it's just data-driven player development. That's it. You know, we publish research. We have four uh, peer-reviewed research papers in various reputable journals. Uh, but then we have about 65 employees and probably about 150 professional athletes. Uh, a lot in Tokyo and Japan has been our biggest expansion area. So we have a lot of Japanese uh, professional players, including the odds on favorites to win MVP this year uh, in NPB. So it's been, it's been awesome. And what is the, what are the sort of methods that you guys use? Obviously data-driven is, is the, the, the sort of note thing you're known for is like the weighted ball and the, the, but it, it, it seems like it's more than that, but can you explain the weighted ball thing, which was sort of like the, the early insight that you had, right? Yeah, probably what we're most known for is the overload underload training for both bats and uh, balls. Like, so throwing uh, baseballs that are slightly heavier and slightly lighter than a ball uh, has positive benefits to both velocity and command, just general performance. And this is not a novel insight. This is something that had been written about specifically in the baseball domain by a professor at the University of Hawaii. And then prior to that, decades prior to that was well accepted and still is used in javelin shot put discus uh, other throwing sports like this concept of overload underload training is is very old um so it's just something adapting that to a more modern training system for a slightly different sport and can that be extrapolated into other sports as you know beyond i mean like football and any anything you throw in or i mean like does it work for golf and things like that is it is it generally like something that we should be thinking about in, in every sport we do yeah, definitely. Golf is well accepted. There's a couple different systems called like the stack system is probably the most popular uh, that's out there. Dr. Sasha McKenzie uh, uses it or he's the proprietor of it. And it's great, great system. I know uh, Dr. McKenzie quite well. And it works wonderful for that. And probably the largest exponent of that that blew up on the tour was Bryson DeChambeau. So then, you know, lifting weights and swinging faster is good. Uh, so that has generated no end of controversy, uh, obviously, on the PGA Tour and live. Uh, and when it comes to football, we are just getting into that over the last year. Uh, and we've been using, um, weighted ball training with our quarterbacks. Uh, there's a couple in the NFL that are, uh, doing quite well. Just leave it at that. (laughs) I've gained quite a bit of velocity, uh, when that's one of their tools they're missing. So imagine a extremely accurate quarterback with a 
low power arm, for example. So the canonical example I always think of is like Chad Pennington. Uh, obviously, his is due to injuries, right? But then there's others like Philip Rivers may have been even better. One of the era's most underappreciated quarterbacks. Well, he's he's um, more of a shot yeah. putter than a thrower, though. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The so, throwing action I mean, is definitely uh, tough to him. watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's definitely been something we're doing. We've got some work in college, uh, but then an NFL team called me up and and uh, flew out there and they basically bought the program and we've been using it with their quarterbacks for about a year and it's been really successful. Can you fix Mac you, Jones, please? Like, can you make it, him throw a little faster? Uh, is that is that his issue? I haven't really paid attention much. <laughs> I don't Jones. think he has a particularly strong arm. They they actually, like, I think last year didn't do a Hail Mary because they just didn't think he could reach the end zone or uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, sure, sure. Have him give me a call. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll text him and ha- I'll text Bill and have him give you a call. Um, Perfect. You know, you talk about this culture of experimentation or sort of what makes driveline unique? You know, I mean, really, the thing is that we just test everything we do. It's a really novel concept, you know, like taking it from a science based slash gambling background. Like, why wouldn't you back test your hypotheses? Doesn't seem that crazy to me, Um, but it is in sports. Yeah, as you know, I mean, you've been in professional sports, just this concept that you would test what you say you're going to do and like have controlled experiments is like very heretical. So doing that inside of an organization could be very difficult. So that's why we built our own company to try to gain traction. And turns out that that it's a, it's a winning recipe to get really good results. You, you mentioned on the risk of ruin podcast, um, which by the way, if you all haven't um, heard Kyle on the risk of ruin podcast, it, it was fantastic back, I guess, in June, you mentioned when you were looking into injuries and cause you were, you're, you know, training, uh, you were training high school and college baseball players at the time and you wanted to make sure you weren't messing them up and you said that there was no you didn't find essentially we know nothing about injuries what have you learned um about if anything about that since very you- little i wish i could tell you a much more confident answer uh unfortunately it's a really tough problem you know what we're i think the biggest breakthrough so to speak is going to not be on the biomechanics side on the throwing the ball and observing the pitcher and mechanics. I think that's where everyone goes to because that's the final product they see on TV. But I think that's potentially too late in the process. I think what we probably need to really focus on is the increasing amount of biometrics that are available, whether it's wearing a whoop strap or an aura ring, uh, tracking your sleep, hydration, uh, these physical therapy modalities, testing muscle groups, just collecting all these types of data. In fact, I tweeted out last night about that. Just like, how, how can you log on to Twitter, how can you see what changes dramatically day to day, you know, week to week, month to month, uh, what's being developed <clears throat> on OpenAI's platform and all the open source models that are out there, and then think that I don't want to collect this data, you know, like, oh, well, collecting like shoulder strength every day, it can be a pain in the ass, there's no doubt about it. And it's not immediately obvious why you would do it, because it's not like, oh, if I put this device on my arm and my shoulder strength is down 8%. That means I'm going to have Tommy John. Definitely doesn't mean that. And it definitely doesn't mean it could be a good thing. We, we don't really know. Uh, you have to argue for first principles for a lot of it. Being evidence-based is not helpful when there's no evidence out there. So you have to kind of argue from first principles on what is good to collect and make some decisions knowing that a lot will be wrong. But you don't have a time machine. So like going back in time is not possible. So as a result, if we don't collect the data today, then tomorrow when the breakthroughs exist, uh, we're not going to be able to analyze it. So I think we really have to collect a lot of this sport agnostic data, which is like what I call it. So our strength, our mobility, our hydration, our biometrics. And if we have a year of that data, you know, how how can we do a good job of of driving down injury markers that we do know exist? Or how do we you know, impact that process way down the line? And I, in fact, I took this 
on my on my own when I started with the Reds, I had very high blood pressure, and the physical therapist was like, "You got to like fix this." And I was like, "What's the best way?" And he's like, "Ah, oh, these things, these things." And I'm like, "Well, like I'm a very Type A personality. This is only going to work if I collect all the data and look at it." And so I bought an Apple Watch and an Aura Ring, and I just tracked all of those metrics: which supplements, which you know, sleep things, which prescription medications seemed to have the largest impact. Uh, and it was able to drive all my biometrics. I actually blood drawn two weeks ago, and all my metrics are in the reference range now. So like those abilities to like just like be hyper focused on these areas, you never know what's going to matter, you know. But being able to just collect all this data and analyze it later uh, is, I don't think, controversial from a scientific or definitely not a gambling perspective. Obviously, this makes a lot of sense to all of us. But in the sports world, where it's very deterministic and not probabilistic, we're very bad at that. So like that's something probably the core tenet of how sports betters win, no doubt, you know. Um, but that's what applies to business too. Uh, you're trying you're trying to gain an edge and i mean the money yeah, ballization, the money ballization of baseball um arguably i think has made baseball less entertaining to watch fewer bunts hit and runs balls in play less often um but it makes sense for teams to try to exploit every advantage they can and you know w- walking more and seeing more pitches was and you know, a, a huge advantage do you think that in essence having all these guys that can now throw a lot harder is, is good for the game of baseball. I mean, obviously it's good for the individual pitchers to gain advantage, but where does that take baseball? I think it's a great question. And we're seeing in all the sports, right? We're seeing a ton of passing in NFL, I get, but that happens to be more entertaining. So that's good. Uh, But that's not always the case, right? Incentives are not always perfectly aligned. And this happens both in basketball and and baseball and, and golf, I guess. Like if you don't think that hitting the ball far is entertaining, which I, a lot of fans don't, uh, everything's turning into a power game and it's devol- not devolving. It's just reaching this end stage of this local minima where everything is, is power-based and that's just life. You know, like that's where we're going to be. So we have to reward command. We have to reward the small things. So how do we do that? MLB has done a good job this year, I believe of making the bases larger, increasing uh, chances to steal bases. So this allows for people like Ronald Acuna to hit 40 homers and steal 60 bases, something that's, I don't know that it's been done before. It probably has, but very rare, right? Like the stolen bases are up 18% or 20% this year. And that's always cited as the most exciting play in baseball. So that's great. We're, we're incentivizing stolen bases by pitchers who don't hold runners. That's great. The problem is, is that the stolen base alone is not enough. It doesn't create enough run expectancy, right? To incentivize a lot of use of it. Now, maybe over time it will. It's only been one year. So maybe more and more stolen base experts or specialties will come about. I hope so. Uh, but MLB is definitely trying new things, right? There was that pre-tack ball in A to try to increase the contrast of the ball so the hitters swing and miss less. This caused unintended side effects of the ball being more movement in A. So then they had to scrap that. But these are all these experiments you have to try to make the game more entertaining. And that's always the challenge, right? Whose job is it? to optimize for entertainment. It's clearly not the teams. The teams are clearly incentivized to win games, or at least you would think so. I mean, the Colorado Rockies tend to be a stark contrast to this for whatever reason. Um, But let's just assume that the teams act rationally and try to win games. Okay, that's fine. That's their job. Then it's the league's job to make sure that the share of the pie continues to grow uh, relative to the other sports and make sure the entire pie grows. So that's kind of how I see it. And I think the league's done a good job, uh, especially with the UFC now in the league office, who's moved from the GM side to the league side and is very cognizant of these issues and has clearly enacted quite a few initiatives. Not all that have worked, and that's a good thing. Like the fact that there are failing initiatives means that we're probably trying. It's evidence that we're trying enough. You know, Maybe it isn't actually enough, but the fact that we have some failing initiatives is actually a good thing. Um, so that's kind of how I, I see it. 
So are there any other things they can do in baseball to try to do that? Is, I mean, obviously the, the, the idea we, we had a, a guy by the name of Evan Wash on who is at the NBA and, and is the sort of guy that's, you know, in, in charge of innovation around the, the basketball operations. So like in game, in season tournament, all that kind of stuff. Are there any other things that you think you would, if you were czar of the, of baseball that you would try? I think the root of it is that the sliders do good, right? Like that's the thing. If you're an Orioles fan, then you're watching these pitchers with oh, crazy Bradish, good baby. stuff. Bradish, uh, Shintaro Fujinami, right? Yeah. Fellow driveline athlete right there. There you go. Uh, I mean, these guys have just incredible stuff. And so there's very difficult. How do we solve this, you know, reaction time situation? The pitcher's always an advantage. They get to start first, right? And this has been true forever. Bob Gibson lowering the mound, all these other things that have happened over the years. So how do we how do we do that? And I think maybe manipulating the ball, I think maybe making the ball spin less somehow by changing the density, by increasing the foul ball rate, some other things might, you know, how do we reward balls in play? The other thing that people don't talk about is defenders have become so freaking good. I mean, you watch Kyle Schwarber on TV and we all, oh, look at this, how bad he is defensively. But then look at the shortstops from like 30 years ago or watch a game. And this is great, you know, that the NBA people is like put on a game for the 80s when they talk about like, oh, the 80s game was so much better. And then you watch a random like Pistons Rockets game and you're just like, this is awful. You know, <laughs> like the, the level of play is nowhere close. Um, Rufus and I talk a little bit about about like the edges in baseball because, you know, over when he started betting it, right, there was all this you know, edges around like looking at the, you know, the, the process metrics versus the results metrics. And now with stat, everyone's kind of like looking at sort of the same things in the, the same data around, um, you know, individual player metrics and things like that. Do you think if you were like betting baseball, where would you look for edges? It's gotta be at the stat guest level has to be at the projection level. You know, where are the projections, you know, where are we going? I think probably where you can converge quicker probably is minor league data. Like when you, when players, when, when you're seeing a lot of beta on a roster, like that's gotta be your opportunity. At least that's, that's what that kind of instinctively makes sense to me. So when minor league players are coming up books and, and just general people are going to apply a, a very basic projection and they're going to probably use Marcel or something like it, like zips, which basically regresses to the league average very quickly. So how, how can we converge quicker on the true signal on how good a real player is and how, how they're going to be used by the team. I think that's got to be it. And there's definitely a lot of ways to do that. The problem is getting minor league stack data can be tricky because it's only really publicly available in AAA and some of the ball levels. Uh, but if you, that should be enough because our projection models internally at driveline converge much quicker and they're much better because we use, uh, you know, stat cast and, and batted ball data. So for example, internally, when a certain player was here in training a couple of years ago, you know, we had just rolled out our, new model, which takes all of the in-gym data. So no actual at-bats on the field, right? It's just, here's how heavy they deadlift, how, how high they jump, you know, how fast they run, what their biomechanics look like, um, what their pitch spin, batted ball data looks like, but bat speed, connections, who are all these other things. We put it into, you know, some machine learning model, a couple of them, analyze them, you know, regress, and then we predict their triple slash line and, and their output. And so for this particular player, we were like, oh, he's going to be one of the best hitters in baseball. And we're just like, well, he, he wasn't the year prior. So that's like, it's like a 30% jump in, in output. So, you know, most idiots are going to be like, oh, my model's sick. I have a huge edge. And then obviously anyone that's done this for a living is like, the model sucks, you know. Uh, and then it turns out this player ended up being one of the very best hitters in baseball. And it's like, oh, there's, you can actually predict out output 
based on these discrete process-based metrics um, that are so far removed from the real game. So that goes back to Rufus's original point, which is just like the moneyballization of baseball is nowhere near complete. Like we're continuing down that path and being able to have these process-based outcomes. People think the process is, you know, the walks and the take rate and the BABIP and regressing, but there's a whole another layer of, of component below it in bat speed and, and, and physical attributes that have strong signal to predict how successful someone's going to be. And we're just starting to get there. Probably only a few of the organizations have models around that. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, the first thing I think about when you talk about that is like, okay, some guy's added a new pitch or he's made huge physical, like he's made a lot of physical progress or something like that. And, and you expect, okay, he's going to do better, but also it should change kind of how you weight his past data. Um, I mean, and I think an example of a guy that kind of made a big leap and, and maybe the projections didn't think he would is like a Kyle Bradish who the beginning of last season before he got injured in July, I think it was, he had like a ERA of like seven. And then he, he's basically, since he, he's been, I'd say one of the top five starters in the American league since he, since last August. And he always had the stuff, but it was, um, it was like him taking that sort of big step. And so being able to sort of predict, you know, rapid improvement that some of these players have is kind of such a challenge. Radish is a really good example of one of the first people I think that people will understand what the Orioles stand for because they had done it for a long time in Houston is that Bradish was severely undervalued. Uh, and I thought so even out of college. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Like he pitched at a school that's at 4,000 feet elevation, gives up a billion homers in New Mexico. Like it's very hard to evaluate players in those environments. Additionally, you know, he had plenty more development to go. Like when you take a player first overall, fourth overall out of a great school, like a Paul Skeens out of LSU, there's probably just not much more player development to come. Like he throws a hundred, his stuff is elite. You know, he, he's very good. So, but what about the players that have some room to grow, right? What about a Bradish uh, that came from a smaller school uh, that had all the components to succeed, but maybe didn't express them as best he could in college and even in the minor leagues. And I think that those are the players you try to bet on, but then you have to wait the fact that what team are they with, right? Because if you're a fantasy sports DFS or you, you bet sports, if Bradish is on the Rockies, best believe he's still in double A. Like he's just not getting out, right? Because their player development organization is so bad that either Bradish has to take control of his own career, which he certainly can, right? But then the fact that you play for an organization that's so backwards and gets the least out of the most, that that's very difficult. And that has to be a major weight in your models if you're a better for sure. Can I like kind of going a little bit of a segue, um, but I, it's something I'm very curious about um, that, that sort of bothers me about the Orioles this year is the bullpen usage. I mean, it feels like they've been, you know, they're, they've played matchups. Brandon High's played a lot of matchups, um, you know, platoon stuff, but the biggest thing is just, it feels like they've been overused and you're, you're like, they don't have a lot of guys going multiple innings and it's, it's like he's managing every game to win that game. It feels like, and getting guys up when they don't even go in the game, things like that. I'm curious, do you have any analytics on that? And in, in terms of, I mean, and I guess it would probably be different from pitcher to pitcher too, but are teams looking at this? Are they, are they saying, okay, this guy gets up and throws, this is like, I don't know. We have a way of, of saying this gives him some sort of risk or I don't know. Is there any analytics on that um, and, and the effect of like a pitcher warming up and does that differ from player to player? 
Yeah, it, it's – I would guess that the Orioles – I don't know for sure, but I would guess that the Orioles are in a really similar spot to Houston was when they started to break through, right? Like, so I, I would guess that the majority – that the Orioles' internal projections thought that they were going to be an okay team this year, that they'd be a slightly above 500 would be my guess. That's uh, and that's you know, yeah, you know, is that okay? I didn't even uh, I mean, get that. I would guess that they're probably pretty close. Uh, and then when you have these breakout seasons and the team is contending for a playoff spot, your roster building gets a little bit exposed. That's just my guess, right? So then you have these breakout seasons from a lot of unexpected players. Getting you know, Kurt Cano is a good example, Fujinami, um, Bradish. And you haven't exactly maximized your roster for durability and like, okay, we're going to contend for the World Series. And this is what this ma- what means. It means four pitchers that go deep and this, 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 and bullpen arms that are reliable. And then you find yourself so much further ahead of the curve. And it's no secret that the Orioles de-emphasize pitching in acquisitions and trades because that's exactly what they did in Houston. Uh, there are much more variants around pitching performance. So as a result, you acquire all the best hitters you can in the draft. Pitchers tend to be very overvalued in the draft. And if you look at the Orioles drafts, and the Astros draft under Elias, then you can tell that pitchers don't get taken in the first 10 rounds there. It's just not what happens. And as a result, that leads to patchwork amount of pitchers that need to get this thing going, and then over-reliance on the bullpen. So I think it's a chaining effect, like a markout chaining effect, where they're just not exactly ready to contend for the World Series, but it just doesn't matter because the team is that good. So I would guess that how Brandon uses the pen is probably how the front office wants it to be used. And, and in all reality, unfortunately, is just how it has to be used to get the most out of these players. Um, but it definitely does take a toll on the players, getting them up and putting them in the game and all these things definitely does wear on their arm. And they're cognizant, for sure. They know that it's not the best uh, approach, but you don't, you don't get a lot of chances to win the AL East, you know, uh, so you got to strike while it is while it is where it is. And hopefully that enough relievers can be developed over the offseason in this past year and then coming into next year uh, that uh, you can patch it up together for the next year. So really quickly in player development, and then we'll get to um, some more general questions. The Rays have, I mean, the Rays have been better than practically any organization. Um, I would argue in all major sports at doing more with less and especially on the player development front, what do they do that is so different? And what do you think is sort of the next sort of frontier in play in, in gaining alpha for an organization and the player development side? I, uh, hate to say this and it just seems so boring but i mean it's just true it's these, these organizations how they run their business is so terrible it's like if you were imagine to run a billion dollar business the way that a lot of these organizations do it's crazy there's just no org structure who's in charge of what there's no discrete outputs like the concepts of like product owners and like task boards and we don't even have to get that you know process and system driven i'm not necessarily that guy i've worked long enough in silicon valley to learn to hate a lot of those tools the point is is just like the concept of 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 how to run a business is very absent in most of these organizations. Um, and it makes sense, right? Cause it's a captured market. You know, there's 30 franchises. If there are any more, it will be at the, you know, because MLB says so, and because the owners agree. And as a result, you know, when it was a 40 round draft, now 20 rounds, you're getting 20 new players every single year. So every single mistake that you make is covered up by this very natural variance of the draft. And you're constantly adding all these players. And so what the Rays and the Dodgers do extremely well, for example, and they're parallel, you know, they're completely different ends of the budgetary spectrum, which I think is what illustrates their commonalities, which is that they do care about the depth of the organization. They do care about every single player, like the players that contribute at the major league level for both teams can come from any round. 
Uh, the players like James Outman, who signed for $10,000, Tony Gonsolin signs for $5,000, and they have success in the big leagues. That That is a good story when it's the Oakland A's and when it's Moneyball. That's a great story. It's less of a good story when it's the financialization of a team like the Dodgers. You know, when the Rays do it, that's also okay because the payroll's low. But when the Dodgers are getting outsized, when Mookie Betts is an MVP candidate and their fourth outfielder costs $10,000, that becomes very, very difficult for the low market teams to contend for because it was hilarious to watch the Yankees spend a lot of money on big players and they get upset by the A's. That's a great story and that's good for baseball too. You know, but then when these, when the, the richest teams are also the smartest teams, it's very difficult to figure out how they're going to compete. And they just run their organization well. Like Andrew Friedman knows how to run an organization well. He cares about the output of all the players from the lowest players in double, from A-ball all the way to the big leagues. And when you're a team like, and I keep picking on them, but it is a canonical example of the Rockies. Like they, they shouldn't be able to get away with that, but they take the exact same approach. They only care about their top X players and they're not trying to capture the long tail of value of the lowest hanging fruit. And then as a result, like uh, their roster is exposed like that's and the angels are probably the best example of that in the modern game you have two generational players on the team and they just don't win because every single other player they don't care about their depth and it leads to things like the draft taking a, a first baseman who has below average bat speed in the first round which is typically not a it's a very underperforming profile but they take him and I would guess in large part because they knew that he could play in the big leagues this year. That doesn't make it a good pick, right? But they just knew this person could contribute at a replacement level or slightly above. And so they picked him, rushed into the big leagues. He's there, Nolan Schoenel. And he has almost no extra base hits. And when you look at his swing and you look at his underlying data, it just it really doesn't justify the pick. But that's what happens with teams like this. They, they, they optimize for the short run and they don't. You know, they don't understand that building an organization does take time. Um, and that's very frustrating to watch if you're an Angels fan. What was it like working for a team? And is that something you would do again? I mean, I guess you have your business, so you can't really just go work for a team. Yeah, it's uh, working for the Reds was awesome. The reason I had a lot of offers, uh, the reason I went to the Reds was because I believed in the president of the baseball ops. He had worked, it still does work in a hedge fund. Uh, he was also a part owner. So I knew that having a GM that had a skin in the game would help from a power perspective he promised me xyz he was very demanding i got there i got at least xyz i mean he, he promised me a minimal amount but what i needed and then way over delivered uh so dick williams and that was great then he gave me the power that i needed to make change we had huge results um he left the organization for personal reasons ended up you know he's continuing to run his hedge fund and uh, as a result, like that type of process oriented thinking went out the window with him. So natural for me to leave too, uh, and all the other people that he brought in that way too. And so I've had a lot of other interviews. Uh, I had an offer to be an assistant general manager, a couple, a lot of director pitching. I just turned down a director of minor league development, player development job the other day. Uh, not that I'm not grateful for these offers. I mean, they don't come to people like me, you know, college dropouts from the Midwest who was never a good athlete. Uh, so I, I don't I don't take it lightly. Uh, but if I'm going to do it, like I know roughly how we can succeed. And I've been around too many successful organizations to know the clues. And uh, if there's just not that commitment, it's not really something I want to do. So at this point, I'm really dead set on just expanding to the other sports with driveline, doing those things. And if there's an opportunity to become a general manager or a pass to that, then I'd, I'd be interested. But I think the most likely thing is to be a special assistant in baseball, uh, a part time consultant and be a special assistant and stay on that i have two kids that are 12 and 8 uh 
And just being around them, I think, is, is more important. As they get into high school, I think I might explore more of uh, going full-time there. And as my business kind of grows and I can look to sell some of my equity, um, maybe maybe I'll look then. It's kind of more what I'm targeting. Probably when I'm 50, I'm 40 now. So that's kind of the long the long view. You, uh, you talk a little bit about deterministic and you mentioned it versus probabilistic thinking. Love for you to expand upon that a little bit and also just talk about some examples of this in your business life. I thought there's a great video that came out the other day about um, large language models and the hacker's guide to using GPT. And I watched it and it actually tied back into determinism and probabilism uh, because the lecturer was like, the reason that hallucinations exist in GPT. So for those who don't know, hallucination is when you ask it something and it makes something up and you're just like, that's not right. Like, why does an AI do that? And the reason it does it is because when the real life uh, human feedback or the reinforcement learning layer, when the humans are feeding back answers to the model, when they train it, humans by large love confident answers and they love determinism. They love a model. They love people that tell them what they want to hear. And that's just another great example of how humans love concrete answers when maybe mostly they don't exist. And so obviously in the gambling world, that's the essence of card counting, which we've both done. You've done on a much larger scale than me. Uh, and all these other opportunities. And the same is true in baseball, right? This the concept of these actions that we take don't always map to discrete outputs. And how do you convince players that there's a probabilistic range of things that happen? Uh, and I think if you explain it the right way to baseball players, inherently they understand it because inherently they know their game is a luck-based one, has a lot of probability in it that's ironed out over 162 games. Uh, maybe they don't think that way, but inherently in their bones, they do get it, right? So then I think we've been able to connect with a large number of big leaguers because as soon as you speak their language and connect those two kind of theories, they, they do tend to understand it. Yeah, I think the deterministic thing from a gambler's perspective is one of the hardest things when you look at results to understand that the result, while deterministic, was probabilistic in nature, right? With the, the, the sort of bet you made. I I just actually rewatched. I had uh, the the Cubs last night plus one twenty. They were up six nothing, and I actually didn't know. Michael Lewis was the one who told me on the on my hike today with him. He's the one that told me today. That's a great name drop, by the way. He's he's the <laughs> one that told me that Suzuki missed a, a fly ball, and I just watched it, and that was that's a pretty painful way to lose a game. But again, if you go back to this idea that it's a binary outcome, right? So there's not, nothing you can do, but like, I still feel like that was a reasonable bet, you know, up six, nothing with Justin Steele on the mound. Um, last question for you. What's in the future for you and for driveline? I mean, it's, it's obviously a super interesting business. Um, it, it's, I, I'm, you know, from a startup perspective, which I am like an entrepreneur, it seems challenging to scale because you're at such the core of it. So how do you think about the future of what you're doing? And, um, you know, Michael was actually been asking me today, does he work for a team? I'm like, I don't know if he can really work for one team because that's kind of the death of him at this point. So what what, what are you going to do? So, uh, I try to figure it out every day. Changes day to day. It's one of those things that the minute you're done with the team side or the minute you say, oh, that was great. I got a lot of, lot of experience and I want to do it again. And I'm good. You know, maybe someday then your opportunities show up, right? That's how it always is in life. Whatever you don't want, you know, whenever you're good with it. So I've had some opportunities to interview some places, but it's just the right time for me to focus on driveline. And, and I think the big reason for that is the rise of the consumer-friendly uh, artificial intelligence tools. Uh, that was a amateur machine learning 
you know, I've done some work in the past, done a lot of software development at a low level. Um, so it's something that's always been very interesting to me, but these APIs that are now available with OpenAI and how it could transform our business. You know, the one thing that we did very well over the last decade plus is that we've recorded everything, all the data we've recorded for years and years and years. Uh, and I was having lunch with a assistant general manager of a baseball team um, some time ago. I asked him what the biggest mistake he made is, and he's very well regarded. He's won a ring. And he said, uh, the biggest mistake was not jumping on the Kinetrax uh, Hawkeye, the biomechanics bandwagon, you know, when it first started. I knew about it. I was aware that it was not a publicity problem. It was not an awareness problem. It was just uh, there was other low-hanging fruit and short-term gains, and I could never really see where the biomechanics was going to help right away. So I always prioritized other things. And it's not like he was wrong to do so. It's just like he kept pushing it down the priority list, and he couldn't see actionable results from it. And then uh, he says, you know, about two years ago, he realized how wrong that was because he can never go back in the past. It's not like pitch data where you can go get pitch data from 10 years ago and, and you can analyze it. It's not true about biomechanics data. That's not true. Like the systems, you can't access data from the past. Uh, it's only good for the licenses the year you have it and only the data that you own collect as well. And he said, that's just such a lost opportunity because the next breakthrough will obviously be about biomechanics and human movement. And he was adamant that that was the case. And they, this team has had some breakthroughs on that side, but he knows that it's nothing compared to what's coming. And I agree 100%. And he said, he made the same kind of judgment I did this year. He said, what accelerates the stupidity is that the availability of these large language models, stuff like the CV stuff that GPT released, or OpenAI had released today, yesterday, the vision module. He said, this is going to make it look really dumb that we didn't you know, analyze these things. Now there's consumer-friendly tools that can analyze this data and you can never predict where the breakthroughs are going to be. And that's what he said. Like, you always have to collect as much data even if you don't know where it's going to be valuable. Because if you're good at predicting what data is going to be valuable tomorrow, you need to go trade derivatives. And he said, that he told me that 10 years ago. And that was the, the line I always use. He's like, if you're so good at predicting this thing and data and what's good and what's not, then you need to not be baseball. Just go trade oil futures and make billions of dollars. And it's always stuck with me. I always use that phrase. And um, that's what's going to happen to basketball. I think basketball and, and hockey are the two biggest sports that we're going to help with. We just finished a deployment with the team. And Hawkeye is coming to the NBA. We'll be here this year. And imagine live data that has a second delay of biomechanical data. So you can choose defenders to exploit based on fatigue. They're moving left and right 5% slower than they were five minutes ago. These coaches tend to leave these players in longer than they should. This player can be exploited. It's all film study that these scouts and these coaches do meticulously, but now boiled down to a quantitative way. So once you start with the suppositions of these really intelligent coaches, these assistant coaches that have a lot, they live their life in the film room, and you can start testing their hypotheses and kind of objectively testing them on the data, not only regressively over the games, but live. I, I really think that the NBA is in for its biggest change in the next five years, because I think how TrackMan has changed and driveline has changed baseball, which you guys are kind enough to say with the velocity, that's coming to the NBA. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I think defenses are going to be massively exploited by real-time biomechanics. And I think driveline is going to develop that application because we know the most about how to do those things. So that's just one of many things. And I think Hawkeye will be employed in hockey. And I think the same applies there. So that's what excites me. And that's what I think is really, really in our future baseball too but the other sports are just starting to get their hands around this data and i see massive opportunity awesome 
Interesting stuff, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing what you are up to in the future. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye-bye. So that was our interview with Kyle body. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it, but, um, Rufus, uh, are you excited for this, uh, playoffs with the oh, Orioles? You know, it. you know, I am magic number two. Is that what it is for them to clinch you to win the division? Yeah. They, That's exciting. If, if they lose, they have five games left. If they lose all of them, the Rays, well, if the Rays go three and one, then the Rays will win the division. But basically the Orioles just have to go two and three. And the, if the Orioles go two and three, it doesn't matter what the Rays do. Don't you feel like the Rays are kind of like limping to the finish line with no, you know, Wander Franco, no Shane McClanahan. Like they're, they're, you know, they've been limping all season. Like they're such a good team and they have been so unlucky with injuries. Yeah. Or is it luck? Huh? I don't know. We, we can, we can use that. Yeah. Kyle body. That's, that's the, you know, the analysis of like health and whatnot. Um, how did, do you remember who we picked last week? I think I, you picked uh, Tampa Bay, I, I, so yeah. you lost. Boo, boo hoo! And I think I picked Tennessee, which was also not so good. So no, good. let's just say that we did not do particularly well. My circa millions picks did not do great either. I fell out from twenty seventh place to like two hundred fiftieth place. Who'd for, you have in Survivor? Entry, but Survivor, I absolutely nailed it. I my my model of the selection percentage. Um, just based on what people had picked in the past in the circa millions contest as a function of future value and current price had Jacksonville pegged at uh, 43% and they ended up Jacksonville ended up with 40% of the selections on them. So we ended up taking, um, we took the Cleveland Browns with half of our, I think four of our nine entries, Mm -hmm. we took Cleveland, which had a 0.1% ownership there. So wow. that was nicely leveraged and came out, came through nicely. We took the Dolphins with four of them, which ended up at 2.3% ownership. So we were leveraged well there. And then we had one on the Chiefs. And I think the Chiefs were in the 8 to 11% range. And it might've been actually even higher. I think actually the Chiefs- uh, you, had, you had three games that you didn't have to sweat at all. That's no, pretty correct. awesome. Correct. Yeah, but mean... it's going to be really interesting, Jeff, this week, um, because you have so, you you have- I think four or five games with, with big spreads. Um, and I'm yeah. including the chargers game in that. Cause I think that, I think that line's going to go up because I always hate the chargers. And I think that line is right where it should be. Um, so that, that tells me something, but you have that game. You have Dallas, new England, the big one, San Francisco, Arizona, and then Kansas the Chiefs, city yeah, jets the Chiefs and, and then Eagles, Washington. But the th- what's interesting though, is that so many of these teams are, uh, playing in the sort of Thanksgiving mini week. So for the Circa Millions contest, there's actually 20 weeks in the season. And the Thanksgiving slash Black Friday games comprise a mini week. Oh, wow. And then they That's have, kind of a cool idea. It is. And then also the Christmas Day games. There's three games on Christmas Day. That comprises a separate mini week. So you have to so save, you have to save you have to. teams yeah. for that. That's interesting. And so the thing is, it's all the good teams playing. Strategery. It's basically all the good teams. I think San Francisco plays on both those many weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas plays on Thanksgiving always. Kansas City, I believe, is um, the Thanksgiving week. And I believe the Eagles are one of them as well. And so trying to figure out how that's going to affect ownership and and how I should 
view it as well is is interesting and challenging because I want to be contrarian, but I also need to, I, I want to have some a team left. Makes sense. And it, there's, I think that's a big who, reason. Who are you going to pick this week? People were so high on Jacksonville last week because Jacksonville is not, um, I don't think Jacksonville was a Thanksgiving Christmas Day game team. We got a we got an England game this week, huh? Yeah, Jacksonville versus the Falcons. Yeah. Does Jacksonville suck? I mean, it seems like they might suck because they didn't score any points against Kansas City, but Kansas City's D, I guess, is pretty good. And then they just got boat raced by Houston. So it wasn't you know, good. And that's my analysis. They suck. <laughs> I mean, the, my analysis is that we are overreacting to it seems like each week. It's, we like, we always do that. It's the it, NFL. It's yeah. What do you who are you going to take this week? You need, we need to pick. I have not. We have. I've not run the survivor analysis uh, model. Oh, well, yet. What about no no no? But so. what about what about our our pick for the week? Maybe you can do a college game for the kids. Oh, uh, you know, you I might I might actually a college game. Yeah, nah. Ooh, the 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 Carolina the Carolina game just went off the board. Something must be happening there. Carolina, Minnesota. Oh, Bryce Young. Bryce, Bryce Young versus Dalton. There's a, I mean, there's a lot like... of in, there's a lot of quarterback injury issues this week. You have you have Carolina. Dalton played well, by the way. I was watching that game because we had Dalton's Seattle minus six. Dalton's minus an upgrade five. there. Yeah, I know you like him because he's old and white. Exactly. So well, he's not an upgrade for the future for Carolina, but but right now I. Thanks for him. clarifying the future. Just... There's not much future for Andy Dalton. Yeah, I don't I think, think. It, they didn't invest heavily in him. Um. um you have, you, it you looks like take... Derek Carr is going to be gone. Um, I think that's pretty much more set in stone with the AC joint in the shoulder, mm-hmm. but Garoppolo's in the concussion protocol and I'm missing one of the games. There's one more. There's, there's a lot of this this week. It feels like. I wish that I had taken new England plus seven. Do you have a D oh. are sevens widely available Indy. now? Indy Minshew and Richardson. Yeah. Again, who would you rather have? Though? I probably I mean, at this point Minshew. I, I kind of agree. I think they're going to be pretty But, close. I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? Because, ultimately, it's Indy is playing for the future, right? So, they sh- they want Richardson to play. I mean, winning or losing the season for them probably doesn't matter. Although, they look, they they good, look reasonable. They they beat the Ravens. They did beat the Ravens. Um, knocked out even more Survivor people. Yes. And the, also the Cowboys, right? That must knock some people out, too. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, a, it was a very... Very uh, upset-filled week. Roof, who you want? Who is your pick? Uh, maybe Tampa against the Saints against the Jameis Saints. The ta- Saints defense is pretty good though, but it is. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the Patriots. Actually, I like them too. Is that seven? Do you have seven or are you six and a half? I'm se- I'm seeing seven here. Okay, yeah, that would have been my pick good. also. You took my Patriots, Rufus. You know I love the it, Patriots. You know, normally I would give out. Actually, that's eh. It's seven juiced to the it's like minus seven plus 100 it's circa so that's plus seven minus gonna, 120 I think it'll, it's gonna um, go down i'm gonna to... the unabated consensus no vig is minus seven plus 109 so we're closer to six and a half than to seven and so i'm gonna give this pick out at plus six and a half i'm gonna take the dolphins i think that's gonna go to three it looks like it's like more or less three so i'll take the dolphins plus the three i'm, I'm falling for the hype question if you were McDaniel, would you have kicked the field goal to set the record? No, I like that he didn't do it. Yeah, me too. And I like that he just kind of like was like, I could do it, but I, I'm not going to do it. So, it's all right, guys. 
uh, thanks for listening this week. And we will talk to you guys all again next week. We talked a little bit about Google Scholar. Um, what what are some of the things that you're most excited about in the future of HTAA? Obviously, it's a very evolving uh, effort. And as you think about the roadmap in front of you, what are the things that you're most excited about? Uh, I think I'm most excited about uh, our potential ability to increase the number of bets. So when we first launched, we we first launched with a model that was forecasting six months equity risk premium. So even though we had overlapping returns, you really had two independent observations per day. So that was pretty rough. And then, you know, eventually we shortened the horizons and we were more successful once we were forecasting one day ahead returns. So now we have one bet per day. And uh, we have recently been approved to trade options in the fund. And we have spent a lot of time uh, internally developing options trading strategies. So this will increase the number of bets we can place. And also that opens up um, potential for building more sophisticated models, which I'm excited about. Again, like when you're forecasting S&P 500 returns one day ahead, you get 250 observations per year. So with 10 years of data, you get 2,500 observations. So you can't really go you know, much more sophisticated than regression models. But once you open the door to being able to forecast options returns, you have so many classes and so many expirations and, and a rich history. So that really opens up the door for potentially using more sophisticated machine learning models. Are there any, you know, asset classes or strategies that are outside of your world that you are interested in or that you put your money into? Like what are, what are they, you know, obviously the, the sort of high frequency in a low frequency world, blah, blah, that is the ethos of, of your investment strategy, but are there other areas that you personally are interested in putting money into um, that aren't in your do specific domain? Uh, so far, not really. I, as I mentioned, I like to stick to things that I think I understand. I feel like I don't understand something. I, I have stayed away. I've stayed away from crypto so far. I'll probably stay away from NFTs and, and a lot of very exciting things that I'm sure a lot of people have edge in, but I I, I like to stick to equities. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are but the engines running off a leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. This episode of Bet the Process is brought to you by Hull Tactical. The hosts of this podcast are not investors with HDAA and were not directly compensated for their views. However, HDAA sponsored this podcast. The hosts and sponsors share a conflict of interest because the sponsor paid a one-time cash compensation for the content of the podcast and the hosts may be incentivized to endorse or promote HDAA's investment management services.